Our study in the book of Luke now brings us to the place where we find Jesus crucified. And we will spend the next few weeks looking at the cross. We're going to start by looking at the seven statements from the cross. Things like Jesus said, mother your son and, and uh, uh, son your mother. Jesus said, it is finished. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we're going to look at these statements this week and next week. Then we're going to look at the things that happened around the cross. There were some strange things. There was darkness from noon until three. We're going to talk about what that darkness was and even the evidence for there being darkness around this time in the middle of the day, which can't be an eclipse because it's a full moon. You can have a lunar eclipse on a full moon, but you can't have an eclipse of the sun on the full moon. There's, there's a reason for that if you're, I don't understand it, but this, the full moon can't get between us and the sun for the shadow to be able to fall on us uh, or for the shadow to be able to block this, us from the sun. So we're going to talk about the things that happened around the cross. So we're going to kind of break this up. Um, oftentimes, last words of, some, of someone can be very profound, very powerful. And they are. It just seems like they sometimes work out that way. I, I've looked up a few yesterday. Uh, Bob Marley, uh, the reggae singer who wrote the song, I Shot the Sheriff, uh, died in 1981 from melanoma. Uh, and his last words were, money can't buy life. He came from poverty, rose to where he had all the money that he needed. But when it came to dying early and young, and he did die young, he realized money can't buy life. I watched um, Johnny Cash's uh, cover of the Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt, the other day. And it was one of the last songs that he ever recorded. And he has a line in there, you can have it all, my empire of dirt. When you watch that song, especially by Johnny Cash, you realize that what he's saying is, there's nothing in this world that matters. When you come to the end of your life, there's one thing that matters. And that's the people that you love and you making it into the, the kingdom, to the eternal kingdom. Oscar Wilde, the poet, author, and playwright, incredibly winsome guy and, and funny, uh, died in 1900 in a hotel. And this is so fitting for him, if you're familiar with any of his work at all. Uh, he, he didn't like the wallpaper in the room that he was in. So here's his last words. Either that wallpaper goes or I do. And, and he went, the wallpaper, I don't know how long. <coughs> I think I read that they took the wallpaper down just because of that. I think I read that. Uh, if not, they should have. Uh, Beethoven, who lived in the 1700s, said, my friends, applaud. The comedy is over. Now, a comedy in their day wasn't like a comedy in our day. A, com a movie that's a, a romantic comedy or a comedy is a movie that's going to have a bunch of slapstick and funny jokes and people falling down and awkward moments with a silly kind of an ending. All right. That's not what he was saying. He was not saying my life has been a comedy. A comedy was opposed to a drama in their day. In a drama, a play, you would have someone overcoming difficulties and probably have a tragic ending. That was a drama like Romeo and Juliet was not a comedy. It was a drama. A comedy was a lighter hearted play that had a cheerful ending. That's what a comedy was, not what we say a comedy is. So what Beethoven was saying is, my life has been good. And, and I come now to the end. Applaud, the comedy is over. Well, no words are as profound as the words of Jesus spoken from the cross. 
because he was fulfilling scripture, because it spoke of what was happening at that very place, because we get an idea of what he was going through, that this was not a cakewalk for him. I still find people today who like to think that Jesus went through the cross, he knew it was coming, he was kind of like Superman, and he didn't struggle on the cross at all. Uh, he just faced it and, and went through it because of who he was. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches he was fully man and fully God. And that on the cross, in his, hum his humanity, is, not, has, is, ne is never revealed the way it is on the cross. He is suffering greatly, and we see that in the words that he says. And there's so much we learn from them. The first thing that he says when they begin to crucify him is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The Bible doesn't give us much detail about the crucifixion. It just simply says, they took him to the place called the skull, or to Calvary, and there they crucified him. Now the writers in the first century, they're in the Roman Empire, and they don't need to describe crucifixion at all. Because if you were in the Roman Empire, you knew about crucifixion. They were obsessed with it. It was a brutal way to die. In fact, it is considered to be the most torturous way that anyone could die. Ancient historians describe it as writhing on the cross. And there's a reason for that. When you, when you hang up someone vertically, they hang forward on the cross. The weight of your body hangs forward on the cross. You aren't leaning back on it. There's nothing to lean on. And so your weight moves forward. You're hanging on your hands and you're on your, you're on your, on your feet but your weight hangs forward. They did a study where they took 25, 20-somethings, tw uh, strong and healthy, and they tied them to crosses to see how long they could last until they asked to be taken down. These are strong, healthy 25-year-olds. And the, the one who lasted the longest lasted 15 minutes. Once their weight began to swing forward, there's a pressure on your chest that is incredible and it makes it hard to breathe. And you have to pull yourself up by your hands and push yourself up by your feet to take a breath and you can't stay in that position. Obviously, if you're crucified, nails through your hands, you, so you drop back down again. And this is why they called it writhing on the cross. You were in this constant state of needing air but being in pain. It was an excruciating, horrible way to die. And Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And people don't like to like to say, well, that wasn't about the pain of the cross. As if it was somehow a shame that he would not want to go through the pain. None of us would embrace the pain. And if you could avoid it, we would avoid it. If there's, if there's pain we can avoid, how many of you want to avoid it? We want to avoid it. And so Jesus did not want to go through this, this excruciating death, but he did for us. And we see that in the things he says. Look at Luke 22, uh, 23, verse 32. There was also others, two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right hand and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. <clears throat> and they divided his garments and cast lots. Now, it is not surprising to us that right here, the first thing that Jesus says has to do with forgiveness. Why? Because the cross is all about forgiveness. Jesus goes to the cross so you can have your sins forgiven, so you can be reconciled to God. 
That's the end. He's not going to the cross so your sins will be forgiven, but he's going to the cross so you can be reconciled to God and your sins stand in the way. And so the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 says, he dies for the iniquity of mankind. He dies for the iniquity of us all, making a provision for anyone who would come to be able to be saved. Like there might be a provision of water and those that come to that provision are able to drink. Those who don't come to it can't drink, won't drink. But those who do are able to drink. And so Jesus died making a fountain of life for all. And if anyone would come to him, they can be saved. And so Jesus immediately prays, Father, forgive them. Now, I wonder what those Roman soldiers had heard prior to this when they were crucifying someone. I imagine that they had heard someone begging for their life. Please don't do this. Please don't do it. Please, please, please don't do it. I imagine these Roman soldiers had heard people bribing them. I've got money. I've got a lot of money. If you could somehow let me go, I'll get you money. Probably cursing them as they drive the nails through their hands and their feet. I would say not probably, for sure. Facing that pain, a normal average person in the Roman Empire in their days would have cursed and swore at them for doing such a thing. But imagine them swinging the hammer and hearing, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Romans 5, 8 tells us, But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is loving those Roman soldiers. It's interesting. There are those, you know, I always think of the Roman soldiers, but I was reading some different people on it yesterday and uh, some were thinking about the, the, my wife was talking about it as well, about the, um, uh, the leaders, the religious leaders that brought Jesus to be crucified and that Jesus was praying about them. Then I heard someone else say, he was praying for the criminals. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. I still think it's the Roman soldiers. However, it's just interesting how sometimes we get into a narrow focus. And so Jesus, the Bible says God is love. And the Bible says that God so loved the world. Now, that word for love is agape. And we know from 1 Corinthians 13 what the attributes of love are. Love suffers long. Love is kind. Love is, is patient. Love doesn't seek its own. So God is kind with, with all men. He's, he's generous. He's merciful. He's kind. He's good. He doesn't seek his own. He's not puffed up. All of those things that it says about love, God has for everyone in the world. So no wonder as Jesus was on the cross, he was this way towards those men who were crucifying him because he is love and he is giving those things to you. Now, the Bible does say that God has come to hate some and, and that is because men in their rebellious heart, I think of Hitler, there was a way in which we could, we could say at one point that God loved Hitler. But once Hitler had gone down the road and rejected whatever he rejected and began to do the things that he had done, God then hated him. So there can come a point of rejection of God that brings that hatred. But the Bible tells us clearly, God loves the world. And all of those things in Romans 13 apply. And we see that here on the cross. Romans 6.10 says, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. There's something about the universal power of this gift given that it is for everyone. He died once for all. Anyone who would come can be saved. Now, he's also asking for forgiveness based on ignorance, which is interesting to me. 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because we think of God's forgiveness being given to us based on repentance. But here we learn that the forgiveness of God, the judgment of God is nuanced. A lot of times we take nuance out of it. We're either black or white. But God judges people differently. God takes into account the knowledge someone has, the light that they've been given, the intent of their heart. The Bible says, as Jesus was talking about hell, he gave a parable, and in that parable he said, some will be beaten with many stripes, and some will be beaten with few. And that sets on, on end some people's theology about hell. Not everybody's going to be treated the same. God is not going to be unjust in punishing you beyond what you deserve if you reject him and find yourself separated from God and in that place of judgment. You will be judged fairly for what you have done. And so it's nuanced. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. This example of forgiveness is also an example for us to forgive those who are crucifying us. And I put it that way on purpose. Because when I start talking about forgiveness and I tell you that the Bible requires you to forgive, the Bible says, if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. We are supposed to pray in the Lord's Prayer, which is a daily kind of prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. Somehow people hear when I talk about that, well, what the person did to me wasn't that bad. I need to let it go. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not when you say that that person who hurt me didn't, it wasn't that bad. So I'm going to let it go. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying you're being petty by holding this grudge, so you need to let it go. No, what they did to you may in fact deserve you to be bitter and angry at them for the rest of your life. But God was merciful to us. And so we need to be merciful to other people. When someone sins against us, they owe us a debt. That's what we feel. So that when someone sins against us, we're like, I'm not talking to you because of what you did. I'm making you pay. You owe me a debt. I'm going to make you pay. When we sin against God, we owe God a debt. The Bible says the wages of sin are death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. You can't earn it. But the wages of sin are death. So how do you forgive someone that's done a very real offense to you? Just like you do a financial debt. If you lent someone money, and then their life took even a worse financial turn and you realized they can't pay it back. And so you called them up and said, listen, that money I gave you, just forget about it. You, can, you, don't, have, you don't owe me anything anymore. You forgave the debt. You took it off the books. You didn't hold them to that. That's how you forgive. You just say, and you don't have to say it to the person. In fact, I would suggest that you don't. I would suggest you say instead to God, God, I let it go. That person that hurt me, that did this thing to me. It was unfair. And you might even, as you're praying about it, get that bitterness rising up in your heart again. It was unfair. It was mean. I can't believe how horrible a person they are. But God, I'm going to let it go. They don't owe me anything because they did that to me. That's forgiveness. And even as I pray that prayer now, there's almost a lightning that I feel. It's like that bitterness. You don't, you don't need to carry that around. It's not them that's paying. It's you that's paying. And so Jesus gives us an example to forgive people who are genuinely hurting us. Now, the second thing that happens on the cross doesn't surprise us as well. There's a salvation. One of the criminals that is crucified with Jesus gets saved. And we have 
salvation. Remember the name Joshua means salvation. So we have salvation on the cross, bringing salvation and having an example of salvation while it's happening. And it is amazing. Now I'm going to read through some of the things that happen on the cross. Remember, in, in studies in the future, we're going to cover these things that happen. The mockings that we're going to read through here. But I want to get to um, the criminal who asked Jesus to forgive him or, or to remember him. Luke 23, 35 through 43. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ, the chosen of God, the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the inscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Three different languages. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the others answering. Now you see this free for all that's happening? People begin mocking him and then the Roman soldiers begin mocking him. And then the soldier on the cross, the, the thief on the cross starts coming in and throwing in. Yeah, save yourself and save us. And uh, it, then it says, but the other answered, rebuking him saying, do you not fear God seeing that we are under the same condemnation? And indeed we justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now there's so much here. First of all, that is a sinner's prayer. I have people that will say, there's no sinner's prayer in the Bible. On the cross. You say, well, it doesn't start off like any sinner's prayer I've ever heard. It doesn't start off like, this doesn't sound like the sinner's prayer. You pray, Robert, when you're leading people to Christ. Well, that's right, because God doesn't give us a sinner's prayer for us to pray. And I think if you put a little bit of thought to it, you can figure out why. If the Bible had a passage where it said, when you are leading someone to Jesus, have them pray this prayer, and then it gave us the prayer. We would say that's scripture, and you're not saved unless you pray that prayer. Now there would be a work that you would have to do. You'd have to do this prayer, this little magic saying, in the, in the order that it is, in order to really be saved. God doesn't do that. But to say that a sinner's prayer is not biblical is wrong because anyone who got saved got saved by surrendering their lives to Christ. For this guy, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Pilate had put a, a sign above his head, king of the Jews. This guy sees the sign above his head, sees people mocking him as a king, and he says, I believe you are a king. He's believing in him. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. They're mocking him as being a king. And he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. That's eternal life. There are people that will criticize God creating our world because there's so much pain and suffering and senseless pain. And we've talked about the problem of pain and suffering before. We'll talk about it again. But there is a world coming where there is no more sorrow and no more pain no more suffering. This criminal found it that very day. He was taken into the presence of God when he did it. Now, there are people who criticize altar calls, and it's becoming more common for people to do it. They criticize altar calls, and they even criticize giving people an opportunity to give their lives to Christ, which absolutely amazes me. 
as if somehow they're superior because they come to the end of their study and they say, think about what I said. Now, God bless you. Go ahead and, and leave. And don't give people an opportunity. If you don't want to do that, you don't have to. But I would encourage you to give people a chance. D.L. Moody, great evangelist, by the way. D.L. Moody uh, pastored the Illinois church. And on the day before the great Chicago fire, he gave a message. And at the end of it said, I want you to go home and think about what I told you. And when you come back in next week, I'm going to give you an opportunity to give your life to Christ. That night, the city burned down and several of the people from his church died in the fire. And D.L. Moody would say later on, I will never again finish the service where I do not give people a chance to give their lives to the Lord. Because he realized that things are fleeting always. They always are fleeting. And it's important for us to do that. And listen to a couple of passages that help us with this idea of whether or not we should give people a chance to give their lives to Christ, which is a crazy thing that I think that this is even out there. Because on, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved. How did that happen? It says, and 3,000 people were baptized. Did Peter just say, and, and Jesus died for you and he rose again as it was in the scripture. All right. Oh, you want to get saved? Oh, you want to get saved? I mean, how did it happen? Unless he gave them some kind of an opportunity. So they say accepting Jesus is not biblical. Which I say, yes, it is. Listen to John 1, 12. But as many as received him, you, you could, that's accepting him. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be the children of God, to those who believe in his name. You have the right to become a child of God when you receive him. You have the freedom of choice. God isn't going to force his way into your life. And so he's waiting for you to say, I want you. He doesn't want robots. He doesn't want people who are like, I, I don't have to invite him in. I'm just going to either live for him or not, depending on what he wants. He has given you choice and he loves you. And he gives you that call. First Corinthians, excuse me, second Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says this. After talking about Jesus dying on the cross to reconcile us to God. And then we are given a ministry of reconciliation. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. We are reconciling people to God. And here's what the next verse says. This is, again, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, which is an amazing thought. We're ambassadors. That's a respected position to represent a country. And we represent Christ as ambassadors. You are ambassadors of Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's what an altar call is. You're, you're imploring God speaking through us, be reconciled to God, make things right with God. It goes on to say, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, it tells us how the Corinthians got saved by the gospel. Listen to what it says. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received. You have to receive the gospel. You just can't have it preached. To which also you received, and in which you stand, by which you are saved. And if you hold fast the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. So they do those four things. They believed, they received, they stood in it, and they were saved by it. The gospel is that Jesus took your place on the cross. 
He died for you. That's the gospel. And we see clearly that the Bible teaches us to give people that opportunity. Now, some may say, well, Jesus didn't say to the thief on the cross, if you ask me to come in, if you ask me to remember you in my kingdom, I will. Yeah, but the Bible says no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him. So the Father and the Son are working together. And, and there's this great salvation on the cross. And if you today have not gotten, have, don't have the promise of paradise, then today you can receive that from him. Now, the third thing that we find on the cross is uh, the, uh, Jesus telling his mother Mary that she was now going to be John's responsibility. This is John 19, 25 through 27. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So there's four women there in front of the cross who know Jesus. Three of them are named Mary, popular name. And then it says, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and his disciple whom he loved standing by him, said to, said to, to, to go back here. Uh, when, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Now, Jesus has four brothers. One of them will become, these are children of Mary and Joseph. One of them will become the pastor in Jerusalem, that's James. And he would write the book of James. Jesus could have looked down from the cross and said, John, tell James to take care of mom. But he has this task for John to do that is outside of the norm. To take Jesus' mother, bring him into his own home, and to care for her. And John does that. This tells us that sometimes the task that God gives us is not within the realm of what's norm or what's expected. In their day, her sons would be the ones that you would say to take care of her. But instead, John will take care of her. The second thing I find here is amazing that Jesus, while hanging on the cross and going through all this pain and suffering, is thinking about other people. He's not caught up in his own pain and suffering. He's thinking about others. This is such a lesson for us. He, we saw it right away when he, when he began to pray for those crucifying him. He's thinking about their eternity. He loves them. It's, it's easy when we are in a painful situation and we're struggling and, and life is unfair and we're facing trials and difficulties. It's easy to become to, to become self-centered and to not think of others. But Christ is giving us an example to think of others in the midst of the trouble that we will have in this world. The Bible says, in this world you will have trouble. And Jesus gives us this great example by thinking of Mary. The last one we want to look at today is Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a strange thing for tourists to think of what Jesus said. This is Matthew 27, 46 through 49. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by, when they heard that said, the man said, the man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. They had done that mockingly earlier. And now when he cries out, they think for Elijah, he does it, and the rest said, let him alone, lest uh, let us see if Elijah will come and save him. Now, first of all, why didn't they understand what Jesus said? So Jesus is hanging on the cross. 
He's up above them on the cross. They're around him. And Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is a mishmash of Aramaic and Hebrew. It's Aramaic words and Hebrew words brought together. Remember, they have Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and Latin that's written above his head. So there's, there's all these different people that are there. And Jesus cries out this sentence that's in two different languages. And maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe in, th there, was a, there was a powerful Hebrew word that he wanted to use. Forsake me. Why have you forsaken me? And he uses the Hebrew word. So maybe there's a reason for why he does the things the way that he does them. But for whatever reason, they don't understand him. And maybe it's, maybe it's the Roman soldiers. Because who has the power to put a sponge on a, on a stick and, and put it to him? You think that the Roman soldiers who crucified him would let anybody walk up and do that? I don't know. I'm just speculating here. But I think the Roman soldiers would have spoken Latin. Maybe they had a working knowledge of Aramaic. Maybe they had a working knowledge of Greek. But the Roman soldiers would have spoken Latin. And so perhaps that's why they didn't understand him. But the thing is, is that Jesus, in the midst of his distress, is pointing to Psalms 1, yes. I mean, excuse me, Psalms 22, yes. This is a fulfillment of scripture. But he's also in distress and he says this, he cries it out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's nothing in the Bible to make us think that God was separated from him or there was some kind of division between them. All it is is Jesus crying out to him and God not answering him. On the cross, for God's own purposes, the Father didn't answer Jesus. I cry out to you in the daytime and you don't hear me. I cry out at night and you don't hear me. There was darkness on the cross for three hours. Jesus is wondering why. Why won't you answer me? And in that moment, he looks so human. Because when in our trouble, when we're facing something difficult, we say the same thing. Why? Why did it have to be this way? Why does, there have to, why does this have to happen to me? Why did this happen to me? It could have been something else. Why? Jesus teaches us it's okay to be in despair. It's okay to question God. If questioning God is a sin, Jesus is sinning right here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is questioning him. In fact, this is, this is the example for us. That when we are in the midst of that struggle and difficulty, we go to God and we ask God why these things are happening. Now, maybe there'll be a time of silence. We find that often in the Psalms. They're crying out to God and they aren't getting answered. And maybe God, for his reasons, whatever he's doing, is not answering you for a time. But the Bible does say, call out to me and I will answer you there will be an answer. It might not be in the time frame you're looking for, but God will answer you. And Jesus, we see his humanity here right in the midst of this. Now, a couple of things in closing. Jesus gives us that example to forgive those around us. And this is something we all deal with because offenses will always happen. Let us be those who forgive. Number two, when we face difficulties and struggles and trials, let's not just be introspective in the midst of that. But let's think of others. This is, this is love that doesn't seek its own, even as Jesus did. And may we find ourselves in the midst of our struggles, calling out to our living God. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have being able to study your word, to find these truths that speak to us and how powerful they are. And Lord, I pray for those that are here today that have never received you, 
that have never asked you to remember them when you go into paradise. And I pray, Lord, now that you would give them boldness to take the next step. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.